When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, and thanks for listening to The Family Brain. I'm Megan Gibson, and this is the last episode before I take a little summer vacation. I am going to be hanging out with my kids this summer and visiting family and reading and regrouping for coming back in September with more episodes. And I'm also taking a little break to just sort of reflect on the conversations I've had so far and sort of think about the direction I want to take going forward. So thank you for all that have been listening. And I'll continue to share past episodes on social media And feel free to share those with your friends if there's an episode that really hit you. Um, Today, I'm talking with Jillian Murphy. Jillian is a um, health coach and she's not a dietitian, but she helps people find peace with food and their bodies. And I loved talking to her. It's funny because coming up on this last episode, I'm looking forward to the summer break and just sort of... um, reflecting on the podcast so far, but talking to her makes me remember why I love doing this so much because she just is such an incredible resource and has so much to share. And if you are someone who is is thinking her work might be helpful to you, please listen and check out her website and learn from her. And I think I could have talked to her forever. She was great. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I will... Be back in September. Enjoy the summer. So, hi, Jillian. Um, I found you on Facebook, actually Facebook or Instagram, one of those. And I love reading about your work with Food, Freedom, Body, Love. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got started in that space. Yeah, absolutely. So I created this method called the Food Freedom Body Love Method, which is a program or a method. It's really more of a process. I I think the word method is really nice because it makes it sound like it's very strategic and methodical, and it is to a certain extent, but it's also very much about process in that I can jump in with people wherever they're at. But the goal with the method or the process is to help adults and children make peace with food 
and their bodies. And so I got into this, or I ended up developing it for a couple of reasons. The first is that I'm a naturopath, trained as a naturopathic doctor, have been working as a naturopath since 2006, and so obviously working pretty intensively with individuals with food and weight and health and how these things intersect. And I was bumping up against a lot of issues early in my career in dealing with those things. And then the second reason is because I personally struggled with food in my body in my early 20s. And I was had a very unhealthy relationship with exercise for a few years. Um, and I, I developed what we now know as orthorexia, which is an anxious, fearful, obsessive relationship with healthy eating or clean eating as we know it today. At the time, there wasn't a word for it. I was sort of like, I joked that I was way ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, but I w- developed a bad relationship with healthy eating. And so, um, and, it, and it wasn't something that was making me healthier. It was something that was absolutely detracting from my health, despite the fact that I was putting very good foods into my body. And it became increasingly restricted, and there were not any resources to help pull me out of that because I didn't fit the right boxes in the counselor's office, and because there wasn't an understanding that this could be a problem, I just wasn't taken very seriously in the doctor's office, and so I had to pull myself out of that, and it was really um, a very long process. I made, you know, big jumps at certain periods of time, but really, I feel like it was like a 15-year process to get myself out of that, and so um, as I began to work with people, interestingly, on healthy eating and, and their bodies, um, there were some, there was some of the messaging that was growing in the clean eating wellness industry that I was very much a part of that worried me and didn't make sense to me. And I didn't necessarily have the vocabulary for it early on, but I just knew because of my own personal history that there was something that didn't feel right, that felt very off. So at what point it, did you kind lot. of realize like, this is real. You know what I mean? Because I think sometimes we have these disconnect or, or something, something's off, something's not connecting. At what point did you sort of realize like, I I think I'm right here or I'm onto something and, and, and then what? Then what do you do when that's not really a resource that's well available? How did you start that work? In terms of my career? So in like terms of your own brain. In terms of your own brain, yeah. like what to make, how to make sense of this, this disconnect feeling you were having that you knew there was something more, but you weren't exactly sure what that was. Well, I think early on, personally, in my, in the really fraught part of my relationship with food, I just knew it was a problem because I felt so anxious all the time. And it was really distracting from activities of daily life. Like it was changing my relationships with my family and my friends. Um, it was all consuming. It was taking so many hours of the day. And I was pretty clear that even though I was really looped into that that sort of like anxious, compulsive cycle with food and exercise, that I didn't want to live my life that way. Like that was always clear to me, even if I didn't know what to do next or how to get out of it. And I really feel like there's something really powerful about just having that awareness mm. and that knowing and intention. Yeah. You know, like when we seek something, we eventually figure it out. For sure. Um, my goal, my goal is to help shorten that time span for people. Right. <laughs> right? Like, like, you know, because there wasn't the internet then even, right? Like this is like 90, you know, it was 99. It was really sort of early 2000 yeah. that things got very bad for me. And so 
you know, I was only a couple of years into even having an email address, so information was not nearly as readily available as right. it is today. Um, and also, people were not talking about food and weight and health in the way that we can currently find people talking about it. And mm-hmm. so, um, I didn't have a lot of resources, but I did have some awareness and I had some intention, which was, I do not want to live my life like this. And I, I, I want, my main goal was to just not think about food every moment of every day. It was killing me. It was exhausting me. It was so overwhelming and exhausting. I can't even, unless you've been there. If you've been there, you get it. I mean, any I, I get it. I, you know, it's funny. I feel yeah. like I had a similar um, experience right around the same time. I think it was like 99. I, I think I had an email address, but I was like, these are kind of weird. I don't think this is going to like you know, click, like, who's going to use this? Um, and I w- had two roommates. I was living, it was like first out of college. I had two roommates who did not have these issues. And I was like, okay, wait a second. Something's, something's off. And I prayed. I was like, please, God, just help me figure out what the heck. I think I just never felt like I really learned how to feed myself. You know, like my mom always put my food in front of me. And then when I got to college, I ate the crap that they, I don't know, I ate like frozen yogurt and cereal. And, um, and I found this book in the library by, um, Janine Roth. Do you know her? Yeah. And I was oh, like, absolutely. she was, yeah, she, she was pretty formative. Yeah. In my early years really? Yeah. Okay. Cause that was the first time I'd ever heard of anything other than restrictive dieting and like fat free. And, and I was like, there's, and I, plowed through every book she had ever written in the library. I was living in California at the time. So, and I actually got to see her speak at one point. And I was like, okay, I, I have to learn this. And it took time, but I just felt like even just reading her book or knowing there was a voice out there of something else gave me hope that there wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, doomed. Uh, yeah, there was, it was, uh, there was another uh, woman, young woman, who was on the cross-country running team at my university actually handed me a couple of her books and was like, read these, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a very sweet, kind, helpful way. Yeah. It's interesting to talk about Janine because I she has been such a major part of my recovery and now doing the work I do, I, there's like a few issues that I have with some of her work, which I'll talk about, right. but I do think that she was like one of those founding founding voices and thought leaders in this area. And so I totally respect and love her work. But it's interesting because, so for me, I knew I didn't want to be in that space. I knew I wanted to have a more peaceful relationship with food. But for me, where it really started was I had a fairly normal relationship with food as a kid, I think. Like I look back on it and I don't remember a lot of um, issues. I was aware of the fact that my body was considered like solid or athletic the whole time I was growing up, but I was a soccer player and it was sort of thought of as a very good thing. For me, when the real, the real struggle with food started was when I was in university and I switched from the soccer team to the cross country team for a couple of reasons. And that coincided with my interest in healthy food. And I just shifted my eating. I shifted my exercise and my body shifted. And it wasn't even that big. Like it was like a like a, a small amount of weight came off my body. I was a very average sized person. Um, but the amount of feedback that I got about that, like we're so proud of you. Mm. Oh my god, good for you. Oh my god, you're totally different. Oh my god, like I look back on it now, and it's uh, it's ridiculous, really, the amount of feedback that I got and. 
But what it really did was it instilled this very interesting belief pattern in my brain that, that like my looks were really important. I was clearly somehow not measuring up before that time, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I always thought I was kind of okay, you know? Right. And this deep fear of what would happen if I went back right. to my old body. And so for me, that's when the food struggles really started. And what's really interesting is that it wasn't until much, 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 much later in my recovery that I began to fully understand that it's our desire to change and manipulate and maintain our bodies that keeps us locked into a struggle with food, right? Because I I kept trying to heal up that relationship with food, but I was still very much in that conventional thought pattern that you like have to be a certain size to be healthy. And like, you know, that was still very much being indoctrinated into me in my naturopathic career and that weight is resolutely bad and we have to get it off. And, and so it's very difficult to make peace with food while you're continually trying to use food to manipulate and maintain your body. And so, um, circling back to sort of the Janine Ross step, I still, again, I respect her. I love her. I still have women, food, and God on mm-hmm. my bookshelf right beside me here as I talk because there's so much that I love about it. But I do think that there's a couple of things from her work, like, and, and it might not have even been her. It might have been the way that I interpreted it. But I, like, labeled myself as an emotional eater mm-hmm. for a really long time because I just thought that I was, like, a little bit broken around food, whereas I can now really see how that was that was totally a reaction to the ongoing low-level restriction I was engaging in mm-hmm. to maintain my body, even though I was, like, aware that I didn't want to be – I thought I was doing it at a normal level, not a problematic level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, – and it's it really, it's not like I don't ever emotionally eat now because all human beings do. It's, right. it's a normal part of eating, but it's almost gone from my eating patterns now because I'm, I don't engage in any form of restriction. Um, and, and same with just like there was a few appetite things that where I took on that maybe my appetite was a little bit broken. And I think there's also this, um, it's a little bit subtle but a little bit of low-line messaging that if we just get our relationship with food right, we'll lose weight. And mm-hmm. for some people, that does happen. And for other people, it doesn't. And um, my only concern there is, again, if we understand this very direct relationship between pursuing intentional weight loss or body maintenance and a struggle with food, we can see how setting that expectation up for people can actually keep them locked into a struggle with food. So, yeah, but I mean, still, I, I had nothing back then, and she was like, yeah, oh God. Yes, right? she was, was like, like sort of different. had put yeah. the flag on the moon, and like, okay, now let's see what yeah. happens next, you know? Um, yes, 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 yes. What do you, would you say to, so I feel like this conversation with you is coming at like, at least an interesting time for me, because it's getting to be summer, and I feel like, and I'm, I'm curious if you have, other people in your practice that this is the experience where I feel pretty solid with my body image. But then there's these dips where, for example, when it gets to be time to put on a bathing suit again, or is that is that I guess I'm trying to figure out I I think I'm guessing it's probably pretty normal. Like, is that normal? Or is that I mean, how do we get out of these ups and down feelings? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to always recognize and acknowledge is the fact that body image is dynamic and so it's not like you're ever going to get to this point in the culture we currently live in right. where 
you're just like, I'm great, my body's great, I'm all good, and you never have a moment of doubt or feeling bad about it. So I think it's really important to sort of normalize that and be like, just like we sometimes have bad hair days mm-hmm. <laughs> or we have like bad mood days, like it's okay to have bad body days. It's just the extent, like the frequency, how intense it is and how much it affects the way that you treat yourself that I think is really dictates if it's a problem or not. But I do think that um, even the, the, the women, I, I work mostly with women, so I say women, but I also work with men and I do a ton of work with kids. So, you know, when I say women, um, you know, forgive me for gendering my, my work. But um, when I do work with women, I'll say that even when they've done a ton of work and they're in a really good place with food and body, there absolutely are almost like predictable moments mm. when things will be a little bit challenging. And I think summer is one of them because it's just this time, um, like especially, I, mean, I live in Canada, I live just a couple hours outside of Toronto, and so we're bundled mm-hmm. for <laughs> several months of the year and then there's all of a sudden this moment where your body is much more exposed and there may be tips and or or sorry tricks and tools that you're using to sort of hide your body and then the heat of the summer comes on and it's it's be uncomfortable and hot or it's allow the world to actually see your body right and it's sort of like to me, it's those moments where the rubber meets the road and um, you really have to, you either have to be uncomfortable and, and um, yeah, I mean, be like adjust, and sort be of. A, yeah, or, or start to work towards seeing things differently, right? you know? Yeah, because I find that but towards the end of the summer, I'm like, whatever, you know, but the beginning of the summer, I'm like, oh, my God, this is awful. Who does this? Um, and I, I noticed the same thing with I had a college reunion and I was like, dang it, I meant to lose weight for this, you know? And I I don't really yeah. think that way anymore, but I was like almost mad at myself. And then there were the people who had lost weight for it. And I was like, well, I'm jealous. Like I meant to do that, but I was too busy with my life, you know, <laughs> which in, in right. retrospect makes I, sense. Yeah. And the first thing I always try to teach women is like, you have been taught, you have been taught since birth that being smaller is better. And so you will continue to have those feelings. It's again, it's about like how we categorize the feelings and the thoughts um, and how much we buy into them Mm -hmm. that dictate how well we're living in our body. And so if that kind of a thought pops up, um, and it's really interesting that you say you use the reunion because I often give women a list of moments when this will likely persevere for them. And it's like summer, big events, like, Weddings mm-hmm. and college reunions. Um, also, when our self care dips, mm-hmm. because we've also been taught as women that when things, when we're not taking care of ourselves and life doesn't feel very good for whatever reason, um, to target those feelings at our bodies. Because our bodies, like, you know, the storyline is basically if you're in the right body, everything in your life will be easier. Mm-hmm. Like, if you really break it down and pull it apart, right. it's like we'll be judged less and we'll, we'll be judged less, we'll have more access to approval and belonging and love and connection and to a certain extent some of those things are true right and so um and we're also taught that our body should be infinitely and easily manipulatable and so um that's another time when when our self-care is off when there's a moment where we want to show up in the world in a certain way and we've been taught that the easiest way to do that is through our bodies um 
And then there's also when the culture is just affecting us. Like there, there are very direct moments when the culture is like, you should be thinner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You are wrong. Your body's wrong. And so those tend to be the three areas where things really, um, continue to persevere. But again, I feel like it's just about recognizing like, oh yeah, that's cultural conditioning working on me. Mm -hmm. I've been taught that I'm showing up as a better, more successful version of myself at this reunion if I'm in a smaller body. But that's not true. So how can I show up at this college reunion as the person I want to be in the body I'm in? Mm-hmm. And that's the work that we start to do, right? I love it's that. like, what? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Well, I was. And, and, I, and I do the same thing in the summer when I'm going to the beach if it's bothering me, right? It's like, I want to show up on the beach. And, you know, there's specifically a beach that I go to in, like, I'm from PEI, which is a little island off the coast of Canada. And I know I'm going to run into people that, you know, I went to high school with mm-hmm. or that, I, that I've known for a long time. And sometimes these fears will creep in. But I just do this whole, um, I mean, I don't have to do it so much anymore, but I used to do a whole thing where it's like, this is how I want to show up on the beach. So how do I show up, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. I love, I was listening to a podcast of yours. I think it was a recent one about the the crazy lady in the attic. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That was making me laugh so hard. I loved it because it's so true. I mean, it's so true. And she just starts like, I mean, maybe talk a little bit about what that is. I bet you could sum it yeah, up better than I could. So, so, right. So I totally stole that from Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski's new book, Burnout. And um, it's about the stress cycle and how women are not processing stress in their bodies. And But it's just, it's a very, from what I have read of it, and I haven't read the whole thing, which I'm sure you heard me talk about, yeah. which is hilarious. But um, um, from what I've read, they're just, they've got a great perspective on, and, it, and I didn't read the part the, um, about body, so I don't want to fully endorse it until I've read that. But this part was so great because I often talk about, you know, from intuitive eating, we talk about the food police, there's lots of talk about the body police that live in our heads that are constantly like trying to enforce diet and weight rules on us. Um, But the way that they describe it in their book, which I thought was so beautiful and interesting, was that there's this woman that lives in our brain, the, the mad woman in the attic or the crazy woman in the attic, and she is constantly working overtime. Like she is in overdrive trying to close the gap between who we as women are supposed to show up in the world as and who we are in reality. And so there's not just around weight and looks, but there are so many things that women are supposed to be in the world. And we're supposed to be kind and palatable. And, you know, we're supposed to juggle a million things and do it all with ease Mm -hmm. and be maternal, but also be sexy and be, you know. (laughs) I love to think about be wealthy, but don't have anything. (laughs) Yeah. measuring this gap between what we're supposed to be, what we believe we're supposed to be, what we've been taught we're supposed to be, and who we actually are. <laughs> and because there's usually a gap because the, the expectations are unrealistic and um, challenging and exhausting. And she's just up there working overtime. And the harder she's working, um, the angrier she will get. And she gets very angry and she starts to direct that anger back at us. Mm-hmm. And it and it shows up in the form of 
incredibly negative self-talk. Because again, she's just like, why can't you just get it together? Right. You know, why can't you just close this gap so I can stop working so hard? You know? I think what I love about that imagery and that idea is that, you know, we can think so much about the culture and about the messages we're sent and not to say that, that we can't work in that direction also, but that's a big undertaking. You know, changing commercials, changing the culture is, is a big thing and we can sort of chip away at that. But the thing we have control over or we can, um, work on now is working with this lady in the attic. You know what I mean? Like that's where we can sort of start our own personal work, I think. And to me, that just makes it feel more manageable instead of like, I can never look at another commercial, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, kind of like what I was saying earlier, when you mentioned the reunion and then the thoughts that you started to have about your body, um, as we become more aware of the cultural conditioning that's been, you know, that's the cultural conditioning we've gone through, um, it, it can be easy to start to feel like if we can't extricate ourselves from it, if we can't like easily pull ourselves out, it's another thing we're failing at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I should be an enlightened feminist. Right. Though. Right. Why am I still having these thoughts? Right. And so I think that that imagery for me, it helps to like, I don't know if normalize is the right word or it helps me approach that voice with more compassion and curiosity and kindness, which is what I was talking about in that podcast, instead of getting angrier Mm -hmm. at myself and being more frustrated and being like, why am I still doing this? Why is this still happening? It's like, all of a sudden you have this image and you have this understanding of like, oh, right, that's what's happening in this moment. And so I can just, approach this voice in my head with compassion like whoa it's it's understandable that you feel this way you've been taught to think like this your whole life you don't know how to show up at the college reunion in the body you're in right and so let's start to work on that and figure that out um and it also like i also said in the podcast occasionally allows you to direct the anger in the right direction right which is toward the culture right but that's Bad. <laughs> but that's hard. I, I love, but I do love that idea of compassion because I think you hit the nail. It's like, I, I, well, wait a second. I already did this work. Why am I doing this again? Yeah. Like, I thought we yeah. were done with this. Put it, put it to bed, you know? And I think, so there's a frustration, like, here we go again. And it's, but, but if you make it into this, oh, here we go again, blah, you're bad because here we're doing this whole thing again. But if you can, like you said, come at it with compassion, like, okay, I know this thing. And I've learned some tools. Let's put them to work instead of like getting all yeah. wrapped up in this whole other thing of poor me. Look at me dealing with this again. Um, yeah, so. it, just, it, it really plays on that perfectionistic tendency that so many of us have mm-hmm. in this world, right? Where it's like, if we're not, it, it's all or nothing. If we're not getting it right, we're totally failing. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is a, this is a process. And like you said, each time we, we revisit it, instead of getting frustrated, we can just see it for what it is and understand that each time we go through it, if we really are dealing with it instead of just burying ourselves, mm-hmm. um, we're better equipped. We have right. more tools. We're better at using the tools, you know, the next time that we find ourselves in that place. Right. I love that. Well, I am, was one of the things I heard you talk about first was your work with kids and kids and food. And I, a kind of a light bulb went off in my brain because I feel like so many of us as adults, myself included, 
I feel like I need to have my shit figured out before. Sorry, mom, I cursed again. My mom told me I cursed on an episode before. I'm like, I don't care. Um, I have to have my shit figured out first so then I can teach my kids. And that maybe it's sort of a parallel process. And what are some of the things that you recommend to families as the parents, the adults are still working on their stuff? And how do we how do we pull the kids into that? Yeah, it absolutely it absolutely is a parallel process if we haven't had the time or the space or the information or opportunity to do the work before we had kids. Um, it is a parallel process. I wish I could remember the details of the study, so I'm just going to paraphrase because I don't have it all, but there's been research around girls and their relationship with food, and what's really interesting is that um, there's evidence that young girls, if they feel like they've been restricted, whether it's in amounts of food or type of food, and whether that restriction is really overt or it's just implied, meaning like the parent is, is kind of like not saying the words, but just sort of like subtly manipulating <laughs> in either of those cases, the girls have a much, a much bigger chance of ending up with a bad relationship with food and actually higher weights than, mm. than would be normal for them. And so it really is an important process and important to understand that children pick up on very subtle um, attempts at manipulating their food and it interferes with the the regulatory system that they have that's actually really quite precise if we allow it to just stay intact. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it is a parallel process because, I mean, as with all parenting, I'm sure, talking about parenting families in an ongoing way, we know that we're always bringing our own stuff into the relationship, right? And so the when I'm working with kids, some of the kids, not all of the kids, but some of the kids that are struggling the most have parents that are doing everything in their power to try to prevent them from having problems because of the, the issues that they may have suffered growing up, right? Like it's a it's an issue born out of love mm-hmm. a lot of the time and out of a desire to protect our children from a bad relationship with food or weight, um, weight judgment that exists in the world. And so, so much of learning to feed our children and allowing them to learn to grow into competent, healthy eaters is about us getting out of the way and allowing them to do that and go through that process. And I think it's becoming harder because while there are many interesting and positive aspects of the healthy, you know, the health and wellness and clean eating movement that's very, very big today, I think one of the places where we're really missing the boat, where we're not going to see the full effects of how badly we're missing the boat is in this belief system that our children should be able to eat like adults, Mm. very young. So there's been, you know, since the early 1900s, 1920s, there's been really amazing, consistent research that children from six weeks on really tightly regulate the amount of food that they take in and they get a wide variety of nutrients over months and years when they are A, consistently presented with relatively healthy food and B, allowed to figure it out on their own without a lot of interference. So there's two pieces to that, right? There's the 
there's the regularly presenting them with, with relatively healthy food. And what gets tricky there is what's healthy and what's not is continually being adjusted and changed for parents, which is tough and tricky and hard to navigate, and then not interfering. So when there's expectations that our children should be eating X number of vegetables or whatever, despite the fact that they really are developmentally potentially not ready for that, um, both of those things encourage parents to get worried and to interfere and to um, engage in feeding behaviors that disconnect our kids from their ability to regulate themselves. So that's a real big mouthful for saying <laughs> um, it's hard. And, and our, our relationship with food, the issues that we've had with food, us wanting to protect our children definitely plays into how we behave around food right. and how we feed our kids. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, I'm just thinking about myself. My kids are currently all of them obsessed with Cheez-Its and we didn't really have them that much. And then all of a sudden we started buying them and it's like they would, it almost seems like they would eat that for every meal if they could. And, but I think it's a fear of mine. Like what if something happens to them and they get sick and they're like, well, what have they been eating? And I'm like, Cheez-Its. But really the truth of it is they're not just eating Cheez-Its. It's just, they really enjoy them. And, um, and I've kind of noticed if I let them just have at it, there gets to be a point where they stop. Um, but I don't know. I, it does. It There is a worry thought for that, you yeah, know, of yeah. like how well, much. Well, there's something and- called sensory. There's great studies on sensory specific satiation where kids, when they study them, they do get sick of food when mm. they eat them over. It doesn't matter if it's a favorite food or if it's a least favorite food. Like they will get sick of it. Um and again, same with adults, we only tend to see there's lots of fears with adults around like, oh, if I left that into my house, I'd never stop eating it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's fairly abnormal human behavior to eat something like well beyond full or to eat something um, when our body really, really, really no longer wants or needs it. And it tends to be a behavior that occurs um when there's restriction Mm -hmm. on some level involved, right? And then the other thing is understanding that what's normal and abnormal has been distorted a little bit in our current, like, wellness, clean eating world, where it's like, you know, in the 80s or something, if there was Jesus in the house, the kids might have had, I don't know, servings of it once a day or twice a day, like, whatever, and nobody would have thought twice about it, potentially. And then it would have been forgotten about for three years or something, Mm -hmm. right? But now... It's like parents do get worried because it's like there's expectations on what we should be feeding our kids. And like right. you said, the last thing you want to do is take them into the doctor and be like, they're eating Cheez-Its. Yeah, know? right. Cheez-Its and chocolate um, chips. Um, yeah. yeah. And so and so we, we, again, if we realize that they pick up on these weird vibes, mm-hmm. even if we're not totally always saying it, if we're like, hey, okay, I got to put these away now. Oh, I'm, I'm just, no, we shouldn't have any more of those. You know, if there's any kind of sense of, restriction happening, then not all kids, but kids that have that tendency will become preoccupied if they're worried that they're not getting enough. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, um, so I, again, this is one of those things where I'm, I was thinking, okay, I've done this work. I've done my research. I'm prepared for when one of my kids, you know, says something about their bodies. That's not you know, supportive or loving of their bodies. So I took my daughter to get um, a a gymnastics outfit and she was like, does this make me look fat? And she's seven. And I was like, who says that? 
where did you hear that? Like, I freaked out. What What do you recommend to parents when, when kids are saying things that, um, and I know that I, I, me saying, who said that? Like, what am I going to hunt down the person? Like, that would be hunting down the majority of the population. Um, so what do you recommend? Like, what? where do you lead conversations like that when things are sort of first just starting or kids are just first starting to notice their bodies? Well, the first thing I always say, and I say this from experience, because I have done this as well, and I believe I talked about it in that kid podcast series, but just in case I didn't, I'll just tell you. So um, I have two daughters, and they have totally different body types, you know, like raised in the same house. They do almost the same amount of activities, and they're fed the same foods, and they um, they have very, like, you know, they have different tastes and slightly different appetites, but not exactly what you would think. But anyway, two very different body types. And so my older one is um, sort of, like, very lean and long, and my younger daughter is round. We call her, like, she's our little, she's like our little round cherub. And um, there was a point when my older daughter was about probably four or five and my younger was about two. And, you know, she said, oh, Pippa's so fat, you know? And I kind of did that whole like, like, we don't what? use that <laughs> word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't use that word. And then I first, I, the first thing to notice in that is that I really reinforced in that moment that that was bad mm-hmm. <laughs> without yeah. even really fully understanding what she was actually saying or bringing to the conversation. And that's one of the issues. Like one of the issues in our diet culture is this, this belief system that fat is resolutely bad. When in reality, you know, fat keeps us warm, fat stores food for if we were ever starving, fat protects our internal organs. Like there's all these amazing things that fat does for us, but our cultural reaction to fat is, you know, like Mm -hmm. that reaction we both had and it's normal but the first thing is always just to check our own belief systems mm-hmm. around fat. Right. And so, and whether or not we are continuing to reinforce that fat is a bad thing. And then the, the second thing, um, which could actually become the first thing once we like explore that a little bit is starting with asking questions. So instead, because that conversation has come up a couple of different times around um, my daughter's body, but also around the older one, like, coming home from school, like, I'm so tiny. And she's saying it in a way, it doesn't sound neutral to me. It sounds like it's somehow being turned into, um, like, a part of her worth or value Mm. in the world Mm -hmm. that she's being taught at school. And so with both of them, I do a lot of, like, well, what does tiny mean to you? Mm -hmm. Or what does fat mean? And, like, what does that mean about who you are? Can people, are you in charge of the amount of fat that's on your body? Like, you both listen to your bodies, you both eat when you're hungry, you stop when you're full, you do these things, you have different amounts of fat on your body. So, you know, I just, I immediately start, number one, I just start asking questions about what they mean, because sometimes they don't mean what you think they mean, Mm -hmm. like, sometimes they're just saying it in a neutral way, or they're maybe even saying it in a positive way, and you're not understanding or if they are saying it in a negative way, you start to get more information about what they're absorbing mm-hmm. exactly. So then you can actually talk about specifically what's happening, right? Yes. Again, if we jump in without knowing what they actually mean and what they're actually saying, then we're just projecting our own beliefs onto them, you right. know? Right. And so I try to dig in. The first thing is I try to dig in. The second thing is I try to poke holes. And... um 
obviously I do this for a living, so I have lots of ways of challenging and criticizing or critiquing the cultural storyline. But even if you're not fully ready, I think that there's very real power in just not accepting it as a fact and suggesting that they don't have to either. Because that was, that was one of the biggest turning points in my recovery was after I had a second baby, I had done a certain amount of the, the recovery work. But after my second child, I put weight on and I kept it on. And as a naturopath and a healthcare professional, I still had these very deep beliefs that I had to take that weight off or I wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. And there was just like that, I call it like my Elizabeth Gilbert, like you were sort of saying, like laying on the floor praying, like come to Jesus moment mm-hmm. of like, there is nothing more I can do here. And seeking someone out to help me who just basically reinforced that for me. Like there's nothing more for you to do here. Like you're living a good, healthy life in your body and anything else beyond what you are currently doing would be unhealthy for you. So if a little more weight has to live on your body, then a little more weight is going to live on your body. But anything else is taking you down a bad road. And so for me, no one had ever suggested that it was maybe okay (laughs) for me to just live in my body in the two years that I had been exploring why my body held on to weight after that baby. And so I think like what I'm doing for them is I'm suggesting that or I'm poking holes in that story from the time they're like five or four or three. And for me, that was like, you know, 32 or 34. Well, and And it's hard when all of the, uh, not all, but many, I would say most healthcare providers are giving you that message. And I, I I went into a, a doctor recently and I was, I was basically wanting her to be like, this is kind of part of the normal aging process. Like this is what happens as yes. you get older. Because yes. I know that to be true. I've read it. I know what that's true. I mean, how can it not be? And, um, but she, then she starts talking to me about carbs and well, you can't eat carbs anymore. And I'm like, I am not going to make that my life's work. <laughs> like getting into this argument with her. And I mean, not argument, but basically standing up for myself and saying, I'm probably, I'm going to be eating carbs. So if that's what you're right. saying, and like is vegetables off the are table. also carbohydrates. Yeah. Right. Like, right. So like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting when, even when you try to advocate for yourself, you're, it's not always a very receptive place um and sort of working to figure out places to go yeah there's such a tricky storyline around weight it's so hard so for me interestingly enough um my family doctor was like I ran all the tests like your thyroid's fine everything's fine I think you're fine um it was more the alternative healthcare practitioners that were like yeah but you could biohack this or like you know, be on bioidentical this or like mm-hmm. it's this part of your thyroid hormone, not that part of your thyroid hormone. And so I really did go down that road and I really did dig into all of it and I was fine. And I always say like if someone really believes that there's something really off about their health, that they should explore it. Right. But for me, I really did dig into it and there was really nothing there. Yeah. Like my blood pressure is great. My heart rate's great. I move my body. I eat relatively well. I have good, you know, like there's just, there was nothing there. Um, and what's also interesting about that is um, my sister is a family doctor and she, because I do this work, has become very interested in it. But she says she has such a hard time because she tries to present that story to her patients. Like, hey, this is a part of aging. And like, 
there are actually certain protective things that happen for women if they put on a little bit of weight, you know, as they age. And, and you know, trying to present that side of the story mm-hmm. and, and getting met with a lot of resistance. <laughs> it's very interesting. You know, it's, just, it's tricky around all sides, right? Because what you were looking for is what I was looking for, right. which is I, I can feel, I have this sense of myself and that I know I'm doing everything kind of that I can right. and that I'm willing to do. Um, and in order to live the life I want to live, right? So I just needed someone to sort of be like, yes, that's fine, you know? Right, right. Whereas other people are looking for someone to give, they're still very much caught up, understandably, in the all of my weight and worth and value is, or sorry, all of my worth and value is tied up in my weight, mm-hmm. you know? And if I can't get this off, I, like, this overshadows and dumbs down every other amazing thing that I have going on in my life. And Mm -hmm. so you need to help me do whatever it takes to get there. And it's frustrating when you're living in that place and that space to have somebody tell you, Hey, this is normal. Right. You know, there's so many other, other people who are willing to take all of your money and all of your time and all of your emotional well being in that pursuit. To that end. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, No, it's interesting just talking about all this because it's funny. I mean, it's not like these incidences are things that I think about all the time. But when you start talking about it, you're like, and then this happened. And then that happened. And you're like, damn it. Uh, um, So funny. Well, I'm just wondering. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you forever. And I'm really enjoying your podcast. I haven't listened to all of the episodes, but I have been listening. So I'm catching up um, as I fold my laundry. Um, But I'm wondering if there's anything that you were hoping that I'd ask you about or that we would talk about that I haven't asked you about yet uh no I don't think so I feel the same way I could talk about this stuff for um hours and hours and hours weeks and weeks and weeks um I do I guess I would love for people to know that I do offer how to feed and how to eat sessions um and the initial one is always just a really good assessment of where we're at with food and health and weight and body and all of those things um and how to how to eat sessions are for adults and the how to feed are for children. Um, I do predominantly work with the, the parents or the guardians in that case, but it is for children. And so I would just love people to know that there's, there's another way to approach this, right? If they're ready to approach food in a more peaceful and easeful way, and if they are looking to make peace with their bodies and stabilize their weight and start to just live happily and healthfully in the bodies they're in, that I do that. That's what I do. Fantastic. I love it. Where can people find you? Where's the best place to, to reach out to you? They can find me at www.foodfreedombodylove.com. Perfect. Um, and the last question I usually ask people um, is just what you do for your own self-care. How do you make sure as you're doing all this work with other people to keep other people healthy, what are the things that you sort of find grounding for you that help keep you healthy? My sort of keystone self-care is movement and it's gone through a lot of, because obviously from those, I've always been an exerciser, I've always been involved in sports and activities, but in my early 20s I did go through a rough patch where I used exercise in a really unhelpful way and so I've had to, to totally renegotiate that relationship, but exercise remains my number one mode of self-care and my and my, the way that I deal with the stress cycle in my life and the way that I shake off, um, tough moments. Um, I just do a lot of different things and 
one of the things that I found in renegotiating my relationship with exercise is um, dance. Mm. And so I was never a dancer as a child, but I do several hours of like contemporary or um, bits of, of ballet throughout the week. And it's just become this really like this interesting joy in my adult life. <laughs> cool. I should try that. I've never, da- I mean, I've danced at a, at a, you know, high school dance, like back and forth kind of thing, but I've never, I, that would be fun to try. It's cool how you can kind it's of really, discover these things really later. Amazing. Well, yeah, because I needed to take a break from some of the exercise that was hurting my body. And so I just started looking into different things. And what's really interesting to me, because I found it. And then since then I realized like, all of the things that I talk about when I talk about movement and all the benefits of movement are really in dance. Like it's not just about burning calories. It's about being connected to your body and being in your body. It's about balance and proprioception and flexibility and like all of these things that actually keep our bodies really well as we age. And it's good for my memory. It's good for my brain. Like there's just, you know, and music, you know, music is so healing. So there's just, it just sort of checks all the boxes for me. Right. That's fantastic. I love that. Well, that's a that's a fun answer. I think you're the first person that said dance in, in the, yeah. the 55 dance episodes. Definitely it. I love it. That's <laughs> great. Well, I have so loved talking to you. And um, I'm going to continue to listen to your podcast and learn more from your information because I just I I mean like I said before I just there's not there's what's interesting to me is there's a lot of like body positivity things out there um like messages and quotes but not a lot of um like at least from my limited you know research uh, not a lot of like okay so now what you know what I mean like how do we how do we work through this and um I love that you're offering that service so thank you for all you're doing oh thanks so much that means a lot Thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. And you can check out more information about The Family Brain on Instagram, Family Brain Podcast, or on the website, familybrainpodcast.com. And thanks so much for those of you who have been listening all along and sharing the episodes with friends. I would love to hear any feedback you have for the return episodes in September and hope you have a great summer. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.